everyone, Marius Masilar here with another great Soundcast interview. Today we're catching up with a familiar face, Mr. Greg Edmondson of Firefly and Uncharted fame, who's back with us to chat about his work on the latest entry in the blockbuster series Uncharted 3, Drake's Deception. How have you been, Greg? I've been fine. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. It's always good to bring back people we've spoken to before, see what they've been up to in the interim. Before we dive into Uncharted, I uh, I wanted to wish you a happy birthday on behalf of the team. It was yesterday, but you know. Well, I'm surprised you knew, but thank you so much. It was a wonderful day. Yeah, well, it's been a busy week for you, I'm, I'm guessing, with the release of the game on Tuesday, and then uh, birthday, and now interview. It's uh, I guess you're celebrating the, the spoils of all that hard work. It's a very good week, and, and it was a lot of hard work. We worked a long time on the game, but it was as much fun as you can have. Oh, absolutely. And actually, the reason I said that um, we shouldn't get to Uncharted yet is just because amid all the Uncharted hype, I don't want any other projects that you've been working on to get lost. So if there were other things that you had done since we'd last spoken that you uh, wouldn't mind, you know, just briefly sharing with us so we know, you know, what other things you do when you're not Mr. Uncharted. You know, I'm trying to go back and see uh, the only two that really come to mind, because we started on, on Uncharted 3 really early. Uh, I did a project for Disney called Skyrunners. It was a sci-fi project. And then I did uh, a movie that will be released this year called Montana Amazon with uh, Haley Joel Osment and Olympia Dukakis. So just kind of fit those in around Uncharted. But, uh, you know, Uncharted took up the lion's share of the time because it was a lot of work. So the films were an opportunity to take a break from that huge uncharted workload that was a long-term project it's always fun to do something a little bit different you know and as you know a picture sometimes is different than video games just because uh, and sometimes it's the same so there are similarities and differences and you get you know the fun thing about what you and i do for a living is to, to be able to celebrate all kinds of different things montana amazon was a real small quirky weird score which is exactly the polar opposite of what uncharted 3 is so it's got kind of fun to flap your wings in, in, in different areas and, and just go, oh, yeah, this is fun, too. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, so I, I'm guessing, though, uh, in the big scheme of things, you would say that Uncharted has really been a pivotal career point for you. It absolutely has been a pivotal career point. And in all honesty, I'm really interested to see where it leads. Uncharted gave me resources that you never, ever get in television, ever. I mean, it's, you know, this time we recorded at uh, Abbey Road in London and with, you know, essentially 80 guys. What what a thrill and what a joy and how lucky is that to have those resources to realize the music that you did. And so I'm really interested to see where it leads. You know, it's on its way somewhere in the business that you and I are in. Sometimes you just have to follow the path. The phone rings and you go down that and that leads to something else. So it's not like it, it's there's sometimes a grand design. It's more you just see what happens next, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, recently you've been going down the game path. So I'm wondering if over the years now you've started identifying yourself as a game composer or do you not even make that distinction? You just still keep it as, you know, I am a composer and whatever happens, happens. That's more the way I look at it. You know, it's just so much fun to write music to almost anything, you know, and I'm, I've really been lucky because except for the early part of my career, I haven't had to write for any like awful projects that can be a little, a little bad, but even still, every time you do a project, you walk away having learned something that you would not have otherwise learned. 
And so it, it, and I would say it's probably the same for actors. So, I mean, every actor, if you look at the, their resume, it's not all great projects, but every project they did probably made them a better actor. So at some point you become, uh, you know, an accumulation of all that you've done. So if you're if you learn something and you walk away a little bit better, having learned a trick that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise, then that's great. And that's what makes it worth it. I think so. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a question about game audio, because now that you've spent some more time in this zone, we often wonder with composers who work in several mediums if you feel that game audio is getting all of the respect that it deserves, or if you're feeling that there's still a little bit of that stigma, I guess, against it that came from the earlier days when it was considered to be on a lower rung than uh, you know film or even television work. Well, you know, there's still ground to cover, and I'll give you some examples. Uh, we don't have an Academy Award for that, obviously, because it's not a movie, but we don't even have a Grammy for game scores, and I think we should. If we're going to have Grammys for everything else, why not Grammys for game scores? But things are changing. The Writers Guild, uh, which you know covers all of the film and television writers, now has an award for video game writing, and it came into being maybe four years ago, uh, Amy Hennig, who wrote Uncharted 2, won. And it was a thrill to see her standing on the same stage as James Cameron and all those guys accepting a video, uh, accepting an award for writing in a video game. So progress is being made. And certainly there's absolutely no shortage of enthusiasm from the fans of the game. They are spectacular. And really, when you get into into the fan base, sci-fi, and video games have the best fans in the whole world. You can do no better. Yeah, it seems that way. They they seem to be the most willing to go out of their way to show their appreciation in whatever way they can. They just are so enthusiastic, and it has meaning to them. And and maybe it's different. You know, you spend more time in a video game than you do uh, watching a movie. You know, I mean, hopefully the video game experience is going to last you ten hours for the first run through, and 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 that's a lot of music. Now, the music is deconstructed because you can't write that much music. So they take what you do and they deconstruct it in some ways. So say you have a full piece that is full orchestra and, you, and it starts off and the player's just figuring out this level. Well, they may just start with the, uh, the uh, celli and the basses and let that play for a while and then add in other elements as, as, as the, the intensity changes in that layer. So it's not that everything you hear is the full composition, but it's a piece of the full composition. And that's why implementation into a, into a, a video game is also a creative art. It needs to be done by somebody who, number one, really, underst- really understands the gaming experience and also who really understands music. And I've been very fortunate. As you know, I've really only done three video games, just Uncharted 1, Uncharted 2, and Uncharted 3. That's that's pretty much my my whole long resume in the video game world, but I've gotten to work with the Sony team, uh, SCEA, uh, out of Foster City, and they have been responsible for the music implementation, and I think they've really done a magnificent job. I'm glad you bring up implementation because one of the things I wanted to ask you was if that had changed at all since Uncharted 2, because um, I recall last time we were speaking, you were explaining the process that you were using for gameplay cues that essentially consisted of like 40 second mini cues that played out and and you had that as an approach that let you be a little more musical rather than simply doing a a very long um, very layer-based approach to it 
So was that kind of the same thing here, or did the layers play a larger role in Drake's deception? You know what? I started with the mini queue, but over as we started Uncharted Three, we 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 kind of all agreed we want the music to be different. It has to be cut from the same piece of cloth because that's what we do, and also it's a big action film. So, but but I did a little. I I I did it different this time. I can't explain to you all the ways, and maybe as we talk, I'll be able to actually put it into words. It's not that the music is not the same this time. It's different. It's it's far more. There, there I wrote a lot more notes, and. It's just a bigger deal in the action sense of things this time. So I did some of that, and I try to always break it down a little bit, but I did it in a completely different way this time. Not by design originally. As you know, with with any kind of art, uh, you start, and then it takes on a life of its own. And when it takes on a life of its own, you pretty much just follow where it's going and and go, okay, well, this seems to be working, and and head off in that direction. So it kind of just took us in that direction. And, and, you know, like this time we used some, some elements that we never would have used in one or two. We used some, some grungy guitars in places. Not all the way through, but just in places. And there was a reason for that, because there was a, there was a level in this uh, game where you, you kind of were hooked up with Somali-type pirates. And where they lived was on these old rotting ships that they had captured and then just, just gathered all together. And they just left them in the sea and they just rotted. So we were looking for a sound that kind of matched that. And, you know, that's less of what an orchestra does, but grungy guitars do it quite well. So we just experimented with different things that we never would have used before. There's a level in the game where I'm trying to think of how to do this without uh, doing spoilers. There's a place where you're in South America for a time. And so I used nylon string guitars, not just as, as a supporting instrument, but as a featured instrument. And so there's a method behind the madness. But you will, hear, you will find all that in the score. And what we kind of never did in one and two was write for specific levels. We just wrote music that applied to our overall situation. Because sometimes that's more film-like than saying, oh, well, if we're in this level, you can only have this, this you know, group of instruments. You know, if, if you've got thematic devices that are all about not specific places, but about our overall situation, then it kind of ties it together. In the same way, if you listen to The Godfather, you could have used that theme anywhere in the movie, and it would have worked, because it ties everything together. On the other hand, this time, specific places sounded like they wanted us, wanted us to have at least something unique to that place mixed in with the orchestra that we were always already going to use. And we did do that. So something basically to make it recognizable as something that even sonically has some sort of signature for that specific environment. That's exactly right, and, and quite well put. Now, that didn't mean we limited ourselves to using that piece of music only in that environment. It meant that we had to wait and use that music until we got to that environment. Then if the music happened to fit well somewhere else, no problem, use away. The whole idea is to always use whatever piece of music best serves the game and the gaming experience. And if it's a piece that originally was written for one area and now seems to work quite well in another, then you just use it. And that's why I'm saying the implementation is a creative decision. I mean, so it has to be done creatively, not just by rote. Were you more involved with, uh, I mean, did you work more closely with the implementation team this time around to design how the game would actually 
present the music to us? You know, in a weird way, the whole time I'm writing, I'm working with Amy Hennig at Naughty Dog, our wonderful creative genius who is responsible for the whole Uncharted experience. And, and let me give her credit, even though everybody already knows. I mean, she wrote it. She was responsible for the casting. She's responsible for all the uh, acting performances. She's responsible for creative decisions and how it looks. She just is the creative genius. And, and that takes away nothing from Naughty Dog because that is a whole team of creative geniuses. So she's surrounded by people who make it work for her. And she makes it work for them. And I just try to fit in and make it work for all of them. But I'm also involved with Sony, Jonathan Mayer. I mean, we talk every day on the phone as well. So the whole time we're designing music to go in a layer, we're all involved. So everybody kind of already knows. It's not like they haven't heard the music. And then all of a sudden they sit down at the end of the process and go, well, what do we have here? Let's get involved. Jonathan is involved. And, and, and he's probably the go-to guy for this. He's involved from day one. So it really is, is a team of people involved going, what do we think might serve us well? And what do we think is, uh, th- that we should take a shot at here? Very cool. So that's, um, I mean, that's probably what contributes to the sense that the music is completely inseparable from the game. Uh, I mean, I haven't finished Uncharted 3 yet. Um, I'm you know, somewhere midway through, but I'm noticing even compared to the second one that the music feels even more organically integrated. I'm not really noticing changes. I'm not really noticing transitions that, you know, would call attention to themselves. So I'm, I'm hoping that other game developers will take note of the way that you guys have worked on it because it, it makes a tangible difference from the user's perspective as well, from the players. I mean, we, we notice that it feels less uh, scripted and less contrived this way. I think that's great. I mean, in all honesty, I consider the music to be a success. Even if people, if people don't notice the music, but the experience is exciting for them and, and it makes it fun and it makes it, you know, thrilling when it should be and scary when it should be, that's absolutely fine. And that's, that's, that's the mark of something that seems to be working. It's not that people notice your contribution, it's just that the whole thing is fun for them. They're involved in it, and it, it's a, the whole visceral experience is something that they enjoy. That's success on the highest level, I'm convinced. Naughty Dog did do something different this time. You, you know, a lot of times you tell the story in the cinematics, and the cinematics lead you to gameplay, and then gameplay ultimately leads you to another cinematic so you can outline more of the story. And they tried to do something different this time. They they tried to make some of the you know some of the storytelling integral to gameplay. So there are places where there's storytelling, but it's not a cinematic where you have no control. So it, 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 there was a little bit of a shift on their part, and that was intentional to to again try to make the whole thing organic and let the player feel involved the whole way. So you didn't feel like you were stopping and getting a story. They wanted the cinematics just to flow by, so the experience was seamless, and that's hard to do. And all of that really is is writing and acting and conceptual. And so once they do that, it's my job just to fit in as best I can and and help them accomplish their goal. That's one of the wacky things that's very different about video games. You know, I mean, in, in television or, or film, you have a script, and the script is basically your Bible. So you do you storyboard it, and then you, you have uh, however long you have to shoot. If you've got 28 days to shoot, you go out and you start shooting. But you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. You may fall behind, and, and most times people do. But the idea is you know what you're supposed to be doing. You know what the words are going to be. You know what it's all going to be. In a video game, you start off 
and you start to record the actors and you start to write the story and you have a level that maybe you think that you want to spend, let's say, 45 minutes in. And as you go along over the course of the two-year development, sometimes on one level you may go, you know, this one didn't seem like it was going to be that exciting, but it turns out by the time as it starts to come together, it's really, really exciting. And so we really would like to stay here longer. So that means you got to add more words. You got to give the actors more to do. You got to stretch it out and you got to stay there. If you, if there was a level, let's say that you thought was going to be real exciting and for whatever reason, it's working out less well than you anticipated, you go, well, let's tighten it up. Let's shorten it up. Well, now you're cutting out words, but the, but the whole story still has to make sense. So this, the script and the whole concept of how the story is flowing has to be adaptable all the way to the end. And yet with all those changes that are going on, it still has to have a through line that makes complete sense so that the player's not aware that there have been changes, that adaptation has been made. The player should just feel like this was the script from the beginning. So it's a wacky format in that way. That's a really fascinating distinction, actually. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it makes a lot of sense to have the structure be more flexible in terms of a game since, I mean, even the way that it's produced is very different from how you would approach a film. Absolutely. And, and it does have to be adaptable. And that's why, you know, when I actually went to the Writers Guild Awards with Amy when she won, and she said, you know, I don't know how they evaluate a script because it's been changed so many times. She said, oh, what I did is I compiled all the words that finally ended up in, 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 the, in the game. But that's very different from the script that we started off with, which doesn't exist in its complete form. In other words, you don't write 138 pages and then start to edit it. You write the pages that you need. You have a storyline, but you can't write it all at once because you know it's going to change drastically and you have to be able to make all those changes. So you, you record it. You write what you need to record with the actors and then you make the changes and you just develop from there. So really, instead of writing and then doing it, Amy's writing for two years because you're writing from the beginning until the end. Yeah, well, she deserves you know, all the acclaim that she's getting because it's, it's very impressive what, what she's done, what the team has done, and, and how you've helped them to tie it all together in the way that you said into an experience that makes people not really notice all of the complexity that went into putting it together and how many changes happened along the way. It's a wacky deal. I mean, I watched all those guys work. You know, when you spin the camera and all of a sudden, you, you know, I mean, how do they get all that done and all the little innuendo? Subtlety is everything to Naughty Dog. They never just like do the, you know, it, it, the nuance is everything. Little things that maybe no one would notice, they spend time on. Because if one person notices, they want it to be there. There are film directors that, that, that are like that too, where you can actually freeze frame almost anywhere in the picture and it looks like a painting. But you would never would notice that when you're actually in the film. You only notice that if you freeze frame it and go, my gosh, look at the set decoration. Everything is just like it would be in a painting. Naughty Dog does the same thing. They just, they just put nuance in. And nuance requires somebody sitting in a computer working until the wee hours of the morning for two years. And they've got a whole team of people that do that. One of the fun things for me, and we may have talked about this last time, is when I'm working on a video game, I have no idea what it's really ultimately going to look like because it doesn't exist yet. One of the things I wanted to ask you is if that had, uh, you know, if that had evolved at all, if you found yourself with some more alpha materials to work from now, or if you were still, you know, occasionally scoring wireframes and sketches. 
Sometimes, well, I never really do the sketches. Sometimes what I'll do is, uh, you know, they, they, do, they, they do the game uh, with what's called mocap, which stands is just short for motion capture. And that's where they put you in the black suit with the little balls everywhere. And so they're actually filming you as you're in motion. So if you're running, they're actually filming you as you're running. And they're picking up all the, the little balls, pick up all the, all the camera stuff. And that means they can faithfully recreate what it really looks like, what the physical motions actually look like coming from a human being. And another thing Naughty Dog does is they actually record the dialogue the same way you would on, on a film or a TV set, which is they boom it with a microphone. So those sound guys running along with you, capturing the sound. So if you're talking with someone or screaming or yelling to them as you're running, they're capturing the sound that's actually coming from you as you're actually running. And that way you don't have to go to an ADR stage and stand in front of a microphone and try and make it sound like you're running. They've captured the sound that actually came from your body as you were doing that physical activity. So it just kind of makes it all you know, I, I can't even remember what my point was, but it kind of, it just kind of makes it all feel more real. And it does. Did you actually get to sit in on any of those sessions? Cause I would think that'd be a whole lot of fun to just watch how the actors do that. I didn't go, I didn't go down this time because my life was otherwise occupied, but I have watched it before. And I'll tell you what's kind of fun about this for actors. If you, if you're working on a film or a TV set and, and you, you finish your scene, then they go, well, let's block the next scene which means they kind of move the camera over and they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And once they figured out what the next thing, the next thing they're going to do is now the lighting guys are going to be lighting it for two hours. So you go back to your trailer and do nothing for two hours. These guys don't need lighting because the whole studio is lit. So they literally can go from one scene to another and there's no lighting. All they have to do is pick up another script piece of paper and say, okay, let's do this one now. So they really get to kind of do the fun that is acting all day long. And they, they do have a great time. I mean, I've listened to some of the banter in between. Amy has done such a good, you know, one of the keys to making a good video game, I think, is, and this is something Naughty Dog does really well. They start with it with a story, and then they start with a really good script, and then they cast it with really good actors and then they make it work. Then they make it fit into a game. So it's not a matter of designing gameplay and then saying, well, let's just make up some story that'll kind of get you from A to B. And gameplay is everything, and the story kind of doesn't matter. And there are people in the gaming industry who still think that. They think story doesn't matter. And they base it all on sales. But as you know, video sales are a little bit, that's a tricky uh, you know, measuring stick to quantify video games because they're, they're independent proprietary formats. So you may be able to sell a lot more games in, in a format that is, is uh, more widely exposed, but... That doesn't necessarily reflect the quality, yeah. It does not. So that's what Naughty Dog does to make it really good. They start with a really good script, they cast it with really good actors, and then they design in between something that will make it exciting and different. And they, you know, and then they, they do graphics that, as you know, are just, they're, they're just spectacular. And I, you know, I don't want to say anything since you haven't gotten through the game. They started off the game exciting, but they wanted to give themselves a place to go. So they've managed to ratchet up the, the action and the intensity all the way to the end. And that's exactly how you want it to play out. Well, that's something to look forward to. 
Swinging back to the music, I remember when you were going from uh, the first Uncharted to number two, you highlighted a few things like a stronger thematic presence and a more cinematic feel as goals that you were trying to accomplish musically. Uh, did you have a similar set of goals going from the second one to the third? I, I'm trying to think of the right way to quantify this. The, fir- the first score was more ambient for a number of reasons. First off, it was my first video game, and they had kind of warned me you know, that we're going to have to loop stuff. So you don't want to do a lot of thematic devices in actually in gameplay. You can do them in cinematics, but you don't want to do them in gameplay because if we're going to have to loop it and a melody comes around every, every, you know, 10 seconds and the player decides to stay in that place for quite a while, it's going to become really irritating. So it was a more ambient score by design. And also we were set in a jungle and ambience kind of works well in a jungle. You've got jungle sounds, you've got all kinds of stuff going on. You don't have to push in the same direction because you're in a closed in environment. Uncharted 2 was a more open environment. You were in, in the mountains in Tibet and, and, and it was just a more open cinematic feel. This time we were, we were in lots of locales, but ultimately it, it's going to end up in the desert, which again is a wide open a uh, spacious place to be cinematic. But we didn't want it to sound like Uncharted 2. So I had to find compositional devices that would not in any way resemble Uncharted 2. And 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 we did. Of course, we, we, we certainly used all of our desert instruments, you know, all of the exotic woodwinds and stringed instruments that would be indigenous to that locale. But also, I wrote with, with a whole different modal concept. You know, I wrote a lot of... Uh, you know, I don't want to get technical because people will go, well, what do I care about that? But we did a lot of stuff in a Phrygian mode, which basically means, means you're taking the notes that people in that part of the world use as a scale and you're building your, your chordal structure from those notes. And it just takes you in a different direction. And it's different. And I used a lot more uh, marcato, busy marcato string thematic stuff than ever I did in Uncharted 2. And and it's more it's way more sophisticated. In all honesty, uh, does that matter? Well, I don't know, but it matters just that sometimes you know personal growth kind of takes you to a certain place. And another thing that has changed is the game engine has gotten more sophisticated. So there are now things they can do that they could not do before. And I got to say, it, it's kind of fun to watch the the genius programmers at Naughty Dog, you know, who actually solved a worldwide problem with quad music by doing this game. They solved a phasing issue that has, has existed in quad music worldwide in this game. And now the rest of the world gets to benefit from their solution. So they are astonishing. And sometimes the Sony guys will come and say, we're having a problem doing this. And a guy like Jonathan Lanier will say, you know what? Come back tomorrow and let me see what I can do. And he solved it. And no one even knows how. It's astonishing. And you go, how lucky to be working with guys who, number one, care that much, but also have, who have the ability to look at a problem and say, okay, they're having a music problem, and it seems to be this. How can I fix that? And they, they're able to fix it. Christoph, who's one of the, uh, you know, Christoph and Evan, who are the, the co-presidents of Naughty Dog, are another couple of geniuses that can just solve any problem that comes their way. It's really amazing. So that must be a fun kind of team to work on. Any any issue you come up against, they can just resolve. 
They seem to. I mean, you know, if it's humanly doable with the game engine as it exists, you know, you still have to work within the format of PlayStation 3. And, and of course, the reason they work within the format of PlayStation 3 is it's the most powerful medium. Could they port the game over to, to another format? Yeah, but it wouldn't look the same. It wouldn't play the same. It wouldn't be the same because it's all about having the power to make it be what it needs to be. I mean, the graphics are obviously incredible to look at and i know that when i play i'm always going through things uh, relatively slowly just so i can inspect all the the details that are in there because you know i love this kind of stuff but the story does drive it and in uncharted 3 we have some familiar faces but we also have some new characters and i was wondering how you address them musically how did they fit into the musical picture you know i never actually address characters uh, I, I i really never have uh, because if you start to put thematic devices to characters, then when you see a character, you you feel it coming. You know what the music's going to be. Oh, it's the theme for this guy. I mean, there are some great new characters in this uh, uh, Cutter, uh, Graham McTavish, who's who's just so great. You know, but you you know, I just never do. I, I never do thematic devices for for characters. That's why I just always look for the situation. So in this one, we had uh, here's our situation in London. Here's our situation in the desert, and those are the thematic devices that I that I find work best. So I don't I don't know that I ever really respond to characters specifically, just the situation. Well, that makes sense. And and along those lines, um, one of the things that I liked about the story, at least so far in, in Drake's Deception, is that it seems to offer us a little more context. It, it gives us a glimpse into the past of some of these characters. Did you take that then as an opportunity to, I guess, sow some seeds of, of musical ideas and conflicts that you would then, you know, already have developed for other parts of the games? No, I just kind of, you know, I mean, again, I just, I just you know, some of that was scene specific. And you, you just kind of said, where are we and what's the story we're telling? And and let me see if I can be a part of telling that story. But I don't know that I tried to do it with the music because, number one, it was done so well with the graphics and with the acting. So I just tried to be part of the wallpaper against which they could tell their story, if that makes sense. To me, that's the most cinematic way of looking at it is, is, is to always be part of the fabric of them telling the story. And uh, – a long time ago, I did a, a, a TV pilot that never made it on the air, and the, the, the director was a guy named Rennie Harlan, who was just coming off Die Hard 2, and it was a big deal. And, and in, the, in, in the course of writing the music, you know, he taught me something that's kind of always stuck with me. He said, listen, if the story isn't working, it's because I haven't done my job, and you won't be able to do it for me. So don't try to tell, tell the story. Just be part of the fabric of letting me tell the story and then we'll live or die based on how good a job I did. But you music can't do it. You know, now it can, it can, it can add to it. It can add to the excitement. If you've got a big action cue, you know, boy, I can try to make the music exciting and, and push it along and do all that. But that's not really telling the story. That's just being part of the fabric of what is already going on on screen. If that makes any sense. It does. And that's a, a wise perspective. I never forgot that. That always stuck with me. You know, it, it always stuck with me. Don't, you, know, you don't try to be on the nose. And, you know, and another thing, thing that I think helps musically, at least this is the way I look at it, is, and this is a Jerry Goldsmith thing, most of the time you're never on the nose. And, you know, of course, part of that, remember, in games would be game implementation. 
which I don't do. But if I was doing a, 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 a TV show or if I was doing a film, let's say somebody gets shot. You don't want to be there when they get shot. You respond to them after they get shot. So that really makes music work when instead of being there always, you respond to it. Now, sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes if everybody's standing still and then all of a sudden a guy starts running, it's okay to, you know, like kind of go with the action. But it almost never hurts to let something happen and then respond to it. So you're definitely a fan of scoring the subtext rather than the sort of Mickey Mousing approach. I'm not a fan of the Mickey Mousing approach. There's an old story with, uh, uh, who was it? Oh, I can't remember. Famous actress, maybe Joan Crawford or somebody. And, and they were, she was working and, and talked to the director and said, who's scoring the film? And he said, Max Steiner. And she said, well, I'm not running up the stairs then. And he said, why? And he said, because Max is going to go with me, you know, <laughs> you know, right up the stairs. With, you know, it, it just it just looks so dorky. It works great for cartoons. It's wonderful for cartoons. Cartoons are, are built on that. Carl Stalling, you know, that's the whole, you know, now it's everything catching every little move right, right when the move happens. But I think for for other stuff, for dramatic fare, it works less well. Yeah. And the language has changed. It really has. And, and people look and they notice it now that, you know, they notice when things are just too, too tight. And you also have to take into consideration sound effects. There are almost always sound effects in places, not if somebody's blinking their eyes, but there are sound effects that, that are also part of the fabric of storytelling. And so, you all, you know, instead of everybody being at the same place at the same time, it's kind of fun if, if, if one thing does something and then somebody else responds to it. And I guarantee you, sound effects have to be on the nose. They can't, you know what I'm saying? You, you can't see two cars, two cars bump and then hear the bump, you know, two seconds later. You know, now, now you've got a problem. But you could hear the two cars bump and then the music could come in two seconds later or, or, or two beats later or half a beat later. You know, there are no rules. You just kind of look and say, what makes it look good? But for whatever reason, I do think that, you know, you just try to be part of the storytelling process. It's all about storytelling. It really is. Sound effects are something we didn't actually get a chance to talk about last time. So I'm glad you mentioned them because over the course of the soundcast, it often comes up that uh, we have issues with the way some modern films and some games are mixed. Actually, last week we were speaking um, about Battlefield 3 and we were saying that in a lot of situations, the music, which is beautiful, is getting buried in the mix because of sound effects. So I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever encountered that kind of issue or if you've always had a, you know, if, you've, if the projects that you've worked on have always uh, been more, I guess, respectful of the balance between music and sound effects. Number one, Naughty Dog has been great to me and Sony has been great to me. Now, in all honesty, if I were to listen to the game with everything up 100%, would I personally mix the, the sound effects down? Yes. Because if you've heard one gun, gunshot in a battle, you, you've heard a lot of what it's going to be. The good news is the, the, the format allows you to do whatever mix you want to do. So it's changeable. Uh, and again, part of, I mean, my job is not to make the music the, the foremost creature. It's just that it's something I love because it's what I do and it's, it's the work I did. But it, it always is mixed probably where it would be in a film. 
But listen, I mean, I've worked on film and TV shows where I go, hey, I'll turn the music up, you know. So that's just that that's part of uh, that's part of the fabric of being a composer. It just is. I mean, you know, I mean, no actor would want to go through all the rigmarole of recording everything and then you can't hear the dialogue. Right. But let me say, as hard as I work on the music, the sound effects team at Naughty Dog works every bit as hard on the sound effects. So I'm a fan of what best tells the story. And sometimes it's the music, sometimes it's the sound effects. Here's what sound effects do and don't have. They sell the reality of the situation. What they don't sell is emotion, because they have no emotion. So, what is the scene about? Long time ago, uh, and I'm going way back in time now, uh, when I first started off, I worked for a a guy named Mike Post, who's like, uh, you know, was the king of TV. And and I was doing a, a TV show. And there was a, a truck coming down the street, like a tanker truck. But then in the middle of the night, it pulled open a sewer cover and started pumping toxic waste into the sewer system. That's how they were disposing of it. So the piece of music that I wrote for that, I got all these industrial sounds. So the sound, they were all industrial sounds as the truck came down the, the street They were the sounds of industry because that kind of tied into the whole toxic waste thing. This was industrial toxins. And I was talking to, to, you know, someone over at Posting. I said, now, what says more about this scene? Oh, he said, oh, the music. It's all about, it's something you have not heard before that's talking about the industrial waste that's going to be dumped down, down here. And I said, what do you think we'll actually hear? And he said, the sound of the truck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know what we heard the sound of the truck the music was there but some effects guy said hey we're seeing a truck we got to hear the truck so they didn't really say what's saying more about the scene the music that is something different or the truck sound that we've heard a quadrillion g- g- times before well they chose the truck so it doesn't always work out your way if you wanted it to work out your way you'd have to shoot your own film and then score it and mix it and you could make it be your own way so no one ever wins completely but you do the best you can and listen i'm I'm completely happy with the way they do it and i'm completely happy with the the fact that a, a player has control over it i think that's a great way to look at it and and to handle it i mean the the frustration that um that we were discussing and that i think all composers Uh, encounter is exactly the kind of situation where their music is what's telling the story and it still ends up buried i mean like you were saying if if the music is not really supposed to be in the foreground there then you know by all means that's that makes sense whatever moves the story forward but when the music is actually sitting in that role and it doesn't get to reach its full potential because it's mixed in under all sorts of other effects then that's the the frustrating situation well, here's the, here's, here are the growing pains, as I see them, of the gaming industry. Movies have been around for a long time. And they went through phases. Remember, we had silent movies, and then we had talkies. And then it developed over time into what we have now. TV's been around a long time. And it developed dramatically. I mean, so you can go back and you can look and say, well, what we have now, sure, and leave it to Beaver. I mean, we've we've come a long way and we've learned what works in that format. The gaming industry is still in 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 the in the growing pain stages, and theirs are are destined to remain ever changing because the format is ever changing. You know, in other words, film learned how to do film, but the format didn't really change. It was the, you know, they got to do the same thing over and over and learn. TV hasn't really changed. It's the same, you know, it's, it's, the process is the same. 
You get out a camera or three cameras, depending on what you're doing. You know, you get a script, you go to the set, you, you, you do your props, you get some actors, you put it together and you do it. But, but the, since the game engine is ever-changing, how do you tell a story and how do you tell an adaptive story and how do you make it work so that it all works? Well, the sand is ever-changing underneath them, but you have to be a good storyteller to begin with. And I, 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 think, I think games are really in the early stages, and Lord knows what they will become. I don't know that we can even see on the horizon what they might ultimately be or if they will, it will just be ever-changing forever. I, I don't know. There's a funny running joke on uh, on Twitter that I'm noticing among game fans saying Uncharted 3 is the best film we've seen all year and in uh, in many ways that's you know it makes me happy and sad because I'm I'm a fan of games but I like when games celebrate their individuality I like when they're showing what the medium can do that you know film and television can't do so I'm wondering if you are if you look at um, taking a cinematic approach to game making as the ideal next step for the industry, or if you are, you know, more in my camp where you think games should really try and, and push beyond that and explore what they can do that is unique to them. You know, it depends on the game. I mean, there are so many different kinds of games. So I would say the rules have to be different depending on what you're trying to accomplish, as opposed to everybody trying to be the same. I don't think everybody wants to be a big cinematic game. You know, they just want to be whatever whatever's fun and whatever people enjoy. And those games don't need a big score necessarily. They just need a score that serves them well. So, uh, you know, I, I think, I think games are really, it's really diverse. It's, it's really wide open. Now, do I love the concept of a big cinematic game? And am I, am I thrilled when people play uncharted three and go, it felt like a movie to me? Absolutely. That was, that was the, the set goal for that game. You see what I'm saying? I mean, you know, and and the whole idea is to is to just make something fun and that people in, enjoy doing. And if that's a little downloadable game, you know, with uh, Angry Birds or whatever, you know, that people enjoy and have a good time with, then you know, mission accomplished. And when we first started on this, Amy was was you know, you know, when we talked about the orchestra for the first one, she really said, you know, that you you don't want to use a, a big orchestra unless you really need it, unless the game calls for it. And she's absolutely right about that. And the orchestra we used on the first game was substantially smaller than the one we used on the last two. Yeah, but then so was the scope of the action. The scope of the game changed. And it, it went from a jungle to a big cinematic, uh, a big cinematic set. So, you know, e even there, you try, to, you try to make the music match the project that you're trying to do. And that would be the case on, on any, anything that you're doing. Now, some people might have a big scope and not the budget to do a big job. Well, now you bump up against, you know, an issue and you have to figure out how to solve it. You know, I have friends who've worked on games that really were big action games, but they had to do it with mostly synth. So that's a struggle. Speaking of instruments, I remember when we were speaking before, you said you had a whole lot of fun, and I mean, it sounded like fun for Among Thieves with things like those giant Tibetan horns and, uh, you know, some of those instruments that were fun just to write for and to work with and to, you know, participate in the recording. I was going to ask you if you had any similar experiences with the instrumentation of Uncharted 3, especially since, as you were saying before, you got to explore some new types of ethnic instruments it was a different locale 
So, of course, we switched. The things that we had in Tibet were, as you mentioned, the giant horns, which were so cool. And also the Arhu, which was this beautiful Chinese instrument. And Karen Han played so beautifully for us. And it was so lyrical and gorgeous sounding. Well, that's not really a desert. That's not a desert sound. And the desert doesn't really have anything quite as lyrical and beautiful as that. So, again, that took the music in somewhat of a different direction. On the other hand, the desert has all these really cool woodwinds, you know, that are kind of dry and dusty sounding. And we got to use those. And we used all sorts of string instruments that they play in, in, in those locales. And those were fun, as always. And then sometimes you take an instrument that is a little more that could fit into any format, like the Duduk, which is an Armenian, sounds essentially like a double reed. It's kind of a thick-sounding Armenian flute. And, and we used that in Uncharted 2, but we used it in Uncharted 3 as well because it can play lyrically and it can play beautifully. And you don't always have to be on the nose with exotic instruments. As long as they tell you that you're in an, an exotic place, they've served their purpose. So you don't always have to be completely specific. Now, what you wouldn't want to do is lead somebody down the complete wrong path. Had we used our Chinese violin in the middle of the desert, that might have been a little bit too, what's wrong with this picture kind of stuff. And we, you know, like Chris Bleth, our our wonderful woodwind guy, came in and he used the Zerna, which is uh, this strange flute that is really wild sounding. It's almost an uncontrollable sounding instrument. And it's just wild. And it matched the desert perfectly. So we got a lot of use out of that. And, and, uh, and uh, we had the percussion guys come in. We had percussion guys for days come in, and they played all sorts of instruments that you've never heard of that just sounded great. So it's really kind of fun doing the ethnic, uh, the ethnic part of the game because we, we get to do it in stages, and it's just really fun. And it's fun for the players. They go, oh, I never get to use this instrument. Now I get to use it. So, you know, it's just fun. Well, it sounds like it, and I, I noticed, actually, the Zorna was one of the instruments that I noticed because it has such a distinctive almost nasal sound to it. Maybe it's my imagination, but it sounded like there's more of a vocal presence in this score than there was in uh, some of the previous ones. We did use vocals. Uh, we, had, there, we, we used a singer that Jonathan Mayer had worked with named Azam Ali. And vocals are always a great way, you know, especially if you're lacking in, in an instrument that's lyrical in the same way as the Arhu. Well, let me, let, let me backtrack a little bit. One of the keys for me to using ethnic instrumentation is you don't have – it doesn't take a lot. It's, it's a lot more seasoning than it is main course. So you can use Western music, Western instrumentation for the main course, and just a little flavor every now and then is enough to season it and say, listen, we're in an exotic locale. And vocals are a great way to do that. So Azam was used in a number of ways. And she, I, I can't remember where home was for her. She, she doesn't live there now. I think it might have been Iran. Like, I could be wrong about that. But anyway, she knew how to sing in those scales and make it sound. And, and it's really an art, art form to do. But she was great at that. And I think her voice lent so much to the game to just putting that layer on of something lyrical without being over the top. Didn't have to be long. Sometimes it's a longer phrase, sometimes it's shorter. And then there are a couple of places in the game where she did some ethnic stuff with her husband and Jonathan that I wasn't even involved in. But the, the bottom the bottom line is uh, Azam did 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 her little piece and it worked out really well. So I think Azam made a real contribution and she's a great talent. Well, it definitely comes across on the album. Uh, she seems to situate the music in that region without beating us over the head with that notion. And there's a starkness 
to it that um, for me conjures up the image of a desert. So, you know, I guess in terms of storytelling quality, that's exactly where you want it to be. Yes. And again, if you marry that to the graphic, then you, you hopefully have accomplished something. And then at some point when someone's played the game, if they hear the music, they go, yes, now, now I have a sense of place for this as well. You as a composer, I mean, I, I understand that your, your brain is able to click through all those things at the, same, at the same time because you think that way. Most people don't think about music that way. A long time ago, I remember when I started music theory, and the teacher said, you know, most people do what's called tone bathing. In other words, it washes over them. And it's of interest to them, and they're processing it, but they're not analyzing it. It's just part of the overall experience. Maybe the same way I might look at a painting because I'm not a painter. So I don't look at it and go, yes, I see that brush technique that I've used before. I see this color combination that is, uh, you know, this mixed with this. I don't analyze it in the same way. And he said, but as you start working in music, your brain switches. You're not aware of it, but it switches from one side of the brain to the other. And now it becomes analytical. So the whole time you're listening to a tune, you're going, okay, let's see, that's the one chord, go into the five chord, go into the three, three minor. There's a three, okay, I hear a flat nine. You know, you just analyze. Now, there are pluses and minuses to that. It means that you almost can just never listen and purely enjoy it because you're always going, oh, oh yeah, I hear that horn line. I, yeah, no, that you know, you know, that lead trumpet's a little out of tune there, you know. But you're analyzing. You just hear in a different way, and I know that's the way you hear because you're a composer as well. So, it's just it's just something that happens. It's not about right or wrong or good or bad. It's just something that happens if you do something enough times that you then begin to analyze everything you hear. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I guess I'm not a typical gamer in that way. No, and music hits people in so many different ways. Uh, I remember a long time ago, years ago, when I was first getting started, I, I worked on a Stephen Bochco show called Cop Rock, where it was about, essentially it was a, a musical. And you would come in after the weekend when the show had aired, and, and people would say, uh, song number three, best song I've ever heard in my life. Song number four, worst piece of crap ever written. And then you talk to the next person, they'd say, number four had me crying. I was on the floor bawling. Number three, I can live without. And you realize that music hits people so differently. You, you, you just can never know how they're going to respond to it. You can just try and do what you think is right for the picture. Trying to be clever never works. On the other hand, you also want it to be you also don't want it to feel like you didn't spend time thinking about it. You want to say, you know, at this point in my life, given the tools that I, I, I have, what can I do? And I will say that, that the score to this one is in some ways, especially on the action cues, but even on some of the others, way more complex. But it was, it was just complex because it, 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 the excitement level of the game needed it to be that. It, it was literally just trying to, to, to say, we need to make this the most exciting thing we know how to do. So I am so proud of the music to this. Uh, I, I can't tell you. But how will people respond? You never know. You just can't fault people they, for, for having their own opinions because they have their own experiences. And they bring their own set of criteria to making a judgment call on anything, all you can do is try and do a really good job, try and raise the bar, and see what the overall response is. It's just the world in which we live, and you know that's the nature of the beast, and really, how lucky are we just to keep doing it? If you and I get to keep doing what we do, and somebody gives us the resources to do the work that we do, how lucky is that? That's just so lucky.
Well, I certainly can't think of anything better. You know, knock on wood, let's keep it going. <laughs> yeah, same here. What does the future hold? Not quite sure. We, we will see. I'm sure it will come as, as a surprise. I would love to do. I would love to do more games. I think that would be fun. But you know, on the other hand, I'm, I'm really spoiled, and you know, I'm, I'm I just am, and I know that I am because it would be hard right now to go from doing a game with these resources to go from to go to doing one without these resources unless it was a completely different kind of game does that make sense yeah well i mean if you were scoring angry birds then you wouldn't really want abbey roads and then, then you don't need then you don't yeah you don't yeah yeah you don't need contrabassoon you know in other words now you're just going now that's all it's just you know it's just a fun game and you could have a good time with quirky sounds and weird little thing you know i mean you, you know you, that would be fun that would be thrilling. It would maybe be hard to to go to do a big action game and they go, listen, it's got to be all synth. That would be a little bit difficult. But you know what? If they called and they were sweet people, I would absolutely pr- probably jump on it. So you just kind of have to see what you kind of have to see what happens. If that makes any sense. So few irons in the fire, but nothing is locked up exactly right now. Well, fair enough. All of your fans are are patiently awaiting. I mean. I know that's uh, that represents all of us here on the Soundcast. We're always eager to see where our friends go next. Thank you so much for your interest. Well, it's been a pleasure again. We hope that, that we can bring you back. Maybe we'll make it a yearly thing and catch up with, with what you've been doing. Cool. I know everyone has appreciated an insider's look at Uncharted and its music and by extension a whole bunch of other topics that we've discussed. All you folks at home, we hope you've enjoyed and that you'll continue to send us your feedback and also leave us comments on iTunes or wherever else you pick up the Soundcast from. Until next time, I'm Marius Masilar, encouraging you to stay tuned.